You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Iona Italia. I'm coming to you today from Buenos Aires, as so often. And today I'm actually co-hosting with uh, Helen Pluckrose again. Hello, Helen. Hello. Lovely to be back again. Um, And Helen is in London. And our guest this week is Heather Hying. Heather is an evolutionary biologist, and um, she is the author of an absolutely amazing book about Madagascar, which is called Antipode or Antipode. Seasons with the Extraordinary Wildlife and Culture of Madagascar. I'm getting old and I'm kind of squinting at that subtitle with my glasses. And um, welcome, Heather. Heather is coming to us from Portland, Oregon. That's right. Thank you so much both for having me. My pleasure. I'm very excited. (laughs) So, Heather, I know that you are more better known to some of my listeners as as having been part of the scandal at Evergreen together with Brett Weinstein. But I'm I'm actually want to talk to you about your your own work. And maybe we could start by hearing uh, how you became interested in evolutionary biology, how and why. Yeah, well there's I suppose there's a number of ways into that story. I was I was compelled as a child that what I wanted to do was write science fiction because I was drawn both to amazing narrative and to science. And, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of math. My father took me to math competitions when I was a child, and I also was trained in classical piano. And so there, you know, the, the well-explicated connections between math and music were very much alive in my life and my household. And I started out as a literature major in college, in fact, but was really stunned and dismayed on literally the first day of my college experience to find, you know, I was, I think I was set to take a creative writing class and some kind of literature class, maybe Solzhenitsyn and Kundera, I think, if memory serves, and um, an astronomy class and a geology class. And on the very first day, uh, of the creative writing class, there was I walked in and there was a list of genres, literary genres on the board, which included everything you can think of, of course, including science fiction, fantasy and detective fiction and, and westerns and romance and all of this. And the teacher, without having even introduced himself, said, these are the things we will not be doing in here. These do not qualify as, as good fiction, and so we won't be writing that in this creative writing class. And this was, you know, this this was one of a few moments in college when I was faced with, frankly, not just an authoritarian but really naive view of the wealth and diversity of human experience. And it did not make me want to write any less, but it did 
start me searching for other ways to explore the kinds of questions that I wanted to explore. And so fast forward just maybe a couple of years and Brett Weinstein, whom you mentioned, who you know, he and I had been friends since high school, actually. We had known each other for several years by then, but but we weren't romantically involved. We were, we were just getting together and he gave me a book by Richard Dawkins, in fact, and said, I think you're going to find some of what you're looking for in here. And in fact, I did. You know, I'd been, I'd been searching for meaning in a number of different ways. I had been lucky enough to, for instance, uh, at the very end of high school, I was the high school member of a retreat that was otherwise peopled by beat poets and artists and led by Thich Nhat Hanh, the then not very well-known, but since extraordinarily well-known Buddhist monk. And you know, was able to spend two two weeks in southern in the hills of Ojai in Southern California with him and with all of these beat poets, uh, doing several sitting meditations and a walking meditation every day, and just you know considering how it is that we find meaning and how it is, you know, at an epistemological level, how it is that we make claims of knowledge and of meaning, and how it is that we assess those. And so added to that mix now was an evolutionary take, which I immediately cottoned to. And uh, a little while later, Brett and I had actually dropped out of the colleges where we both were and had spent a year out of college and realizing that we wanted to go back and found ourselves at UC Santa Cruz, where the... Um, you know, the, perhaps perhaps the world's greatest living evolutionary biologist was then teaching Bob Trivers, and he took us under his wing. He became our our mentor in all regards. And in the middle of learning from him, you know, being his research assistant in various ways, we took a trip, Brett and I, a road trip. It began as a road trip and then became a trip of backpacking and and such through Central America, and. I think the moment that I realized that what I wanted to do was spend time in nature watching animals do what they do and try to figure out what it is that they're doing and why and perhaps apply that understanding to human animals, not just non-human animals, was a night that we were in the shadow of Tikal in the El Patan region of Guatemala. We were pitching a tent. Probably you can't do that anymore, but this was, what was this, 1991, I guess? And uh, we, were, we were both pitching the tent until a troop of, I think it was spider monkeys, came overhead and started bedding down for the night in the trees over us. And I abandoned Brett <laughs> to the tent, and <laughs> I just I just stood there you know, open-mouthed, which is always dangerous to do underneath the monkeys, but um, uh, watching, watching them... <laughs> And, you know, clearly, although it was dark and they were fairly far away, being in the canopy of the, of the jungle trees overhead, and I didn't know much about how to tell the differences between them, you could see immediately that they were individuals with different ways of being and different interests and motives and passions and connections and relationships. And I just, I thought right then, if there is any way that I can be paid you know, and I, you know, I don't need to be paid super well, but if I, if I can be, you know, stable financially while being able to watch animals in the wild do what they do, boy, this is what I want to do. And so that probably was the moment after which I, th I thought this, this is what I am going to be driven to do. 
Mm. That moment of uh, discovering yeah. a passion. I think so. So few people have this where they they just think this this is what I want to do, and and if I could, yeah, just actually make a living at, at doing it, it wouldn't be like like working at all. It would just be it would just be living. <laughs> as with as with all such passions, or at least most all that I can think of at the moment, other things that you want to do in your life get in the way. And uh, it became fairly clear uh, after I did my graduate research in first in Costa Rica, in Panama, and then in Madagascar, uh, that I wasn't interested in a dedicated research career the way that now looks at research institutions, at least in in the West. Uh, it required it required that you do that in your life and only that, and. Mm. I, I wasn't interested in doing that. I've always been more of a generalist. And so I ended up taking, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky. I had a couple of choices of, of academic jobs to take when I accepted the job at Evergreen. And I, I took that job for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which was I foresaw that if, you know, we weren't thinking about a family explicitly at that point, but that, you know, if... If Brett and I were to have children, which we ended up doing fairly quickly, uh, that teaching full time and really learning how to, um, you know, care about and get into the heads of young people might ultimately, and as it turns out, it did allow me to start leading them on trips to to very much the same or similar forests, rainforests, and you know, and other tropical ecosystems that I had fallen in love with. And while I was not going to any longer be doing research of my own, you know, I didn't, I stopped having an active research program at the point that I took the Evergreen job. And then I started focusing more on sort of theoretical interests with regard to how to apply what we understand to be true about our evolutionary history to modern human systems. Uh, but I was able to continue to go to, I never went back to Madagascar with students. It's, it's just too hard. It's too challenging. It's frankly, it's a little bit too remote and dangerous. Uh, but I took students to Panama a few times and Ecuador a couple of times. And it was, it was wondrous to see that same kind of moment of revelation in my students. Hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, um, okay, I have many comments, uh, but I, I just wanted to say before, in case I don't get a chance later that, I can I can I can see that you had a background in literature and fiction. I can tell that that's been a passion of yours because you have an absolutely extraordinary extraordinarily vivid writing style. Thank you so much. Your book Antipode which or Antipode, I'm I'm really not sure how to pronounce that word. But it's uh it's it's not only a really it's a really extraordinary tale because uh, circumstances on Madagascar, as you mentioned, were so extreme and uh, often quite dangerous. I was actually after reading the book, I felt I did not want to go to Madagascar. I have to say <laughs> because your so many of your experiences seemed quite terrifying to me. But also the vividness and detail of the descriptions and the way in which you you make an afternoon of observing frogs in a, a stand of hollowed out bamboo seem absolutely uh, um, the kind of 
I was completely riveted. Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but I want to read a very short passage to give people an idea, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, day 10. Now that the hurricane was past, the reliably unpredictable weather had returned. We had a lazy, gorgeous afternoon, wind and blue clouds washing in and out of the hills across the bay. The Masoala, they say, is the rainiest spot in Madagascar. It is a place of many clouds, of interminable rain, of unending damp. Even though the rain had isolated us for days, we could expect a respite, a golden day of sun and scattered clouds, a day with enough heat to finally dry the socks that were beginning to befoul everything they came in contact with, a day to walk around barefoot, to have a swim in the sea and a shower under the waterfall, a day to let everything dry. All things had to be attended to, or else they would rot and mould and fog over and be ruined. After a night of piercing rain, the sun shone so fiercely that by midday all was dry. Perfect frog-watching weather. The world never went blankly grey on nosy Mangabi. The sea had intrigue, even when grey, white caps receding to a blue mountain horizon, a grey sky with flecks of white, blue, green. On this particular morning, a rainbow over the distant grey sky plunged onto layers of hills. Electric sounds from cicadas, tiny birds and frogs pierced my ears like flashes of hot colour. And the depth of the sky held in it such dimension that even when entirely grey, it was a palette of greys, hundreds, sometimes yielding to a perfect white or black. Mm, thank you. It's been a long time since I've, I've looked at the book. Um, boy, I had a number of thoughts listening to that. Uh, one of them is the, the chaussette de recherche, the, the research socks, as I took to calling them in French, <laughs> were, <laughs> were indeed uh, quite a hazard are any time you work in the <laughs> workshop. And one of the ways that I dealt with them, I dealt with the smells, uh, other than hoping and waiting for the hot, dry day that would dry everything, which of course required that you get back to camp and spread your stuff out in the sun as opposed to have it be in your tent, um, was that this part of Madagascar, northeastern Madagascar, the Mashual Peninsula, is a home to a vibrant spice trade. And much of the world's vanilla comes from there, as well as cloves and cinnamon. And so, whereas otherwise there was almost nothing that you could purchase, you know, it was, it was rice and occasionally a sort of a, a dried fish stock, but you could always buy cloves abundantly and cheaply. And so I bought a lot of cloves and just stuffed them into every corner of every bit of my research gear and research clothing, such that still to this day, I associate the smell of clothes with trying to overcome the smell of the rot that overcomes research gear when you're stuck in a rainforest for months on end. So I sometimes see even when you're when you're just sort of writing on on Twitter, you you make me want to go and explore the world, and I, I realise how little of it I've seen, uh, sort of st uh, stuck in my own brain, looking at um, at people talking about the same things, and I, I just yeah, I want to go and I want to go and explore and pay attention to the world. 
And I think this is well. I know. I know Helen, for instance. You, I mean, I know. I know you, Iona, for sure. But Helen, I know you've seen a lot more of the world than you are giving yourself credit for. But it is. It is part of my my goal, I guess. And I didn't even understand it to be my goal in the beginning of getting on social media. You know, just in the wake of the evergreen madness. You know, my, my first moment on Twitter was in June of 2017. Um, but I realized that part of it was to inspire people with little glimmerings of parts of the world that they had not even imagined, such that maybe they are inspired to go. And, and, and with you tell stories mm. about people as well, I, I've always found it really charming the way you you know without identifying anyone obviously but you you talk about your students and about the relationships that they have and the things they discovered and the ways they grew and and you get really sort of passionate and excited about about that and I, I yeah. it, it makes me very angry that 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 you are not currently teaching you know because I, I think students have, have lost have lost a lot lost a great opportunity with with all that madness as you call it well, thank you. Thank you. You know, it surprised, it surprised no one greater than me, maybe, and perhaps my mother, <laughs> that uh, I became so enamored of, of educating. Uh, it really wasn't what I thought I would have a passion for. And it's, you know, it's one of many things that I love to do. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it, it does say something very unfortunate about the state of modern academia that you know there are there are many of us who deeply care about education and in order to care deeply about education you actually have to care about the students and and believe fundamentally in the humanity of your students and it's become very chic in modern college university settings to talk about student-centered this and how much we have to think about what what the students are experiencing and I find that almost always to a person when I heard individuals spouting that sort of thing. These were exactly the same faculty who behind closed doors would speak with disdain and derisiveness about students, wouldn't even bother to learn their names. And, you know, so it's, it's almost a tell now for me uh, that the people who are most, most proudly talking about student-centered learning are very often the ones who don't actually engage with students as human beings. I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I I did a PGC in higher education. The PGC is a is a pedagogic qualification that you have to take if you're going to teach uh, what you would call high school. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that they may have phased out this requirement for, but for a brief period in history into which I unfortunately fell, you had to um, do this one year. It was the equivalent of an MA. Uh, PGC for higher education as well. And it was so extraordinarily theoretical and um, so divorced from anything that might be useful in your actual teaching methods. Yeah. And that's, that's, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I was not at all impressed by the education department's offerings, neither at my own university um, neither the way that they taught the course, so they had us do five hours of back-to-back lectures, for example. Um, you know, how can you how can you claim to um, be an expert on pedagogy and make people sit through five hours of back-to-back <laughs> lectures? <laughs> right, that's an excellent point. One which I imagine they weren't particularly eager but to that hear. That was what was. 
Um, but also the whole way that it was handled nationally was was just, you know, a mess. It was a lot of tick, bureaucratic ticking of boxes with no thought to actual classroom experience. Well, that was what was, was so wonderful about Evergreen at first, wasn't it, that, that you could just sort of make your own program and and do things your own way? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right, that there was extraordinary and unparalleled freedom for both students and faculty. And that freedom was abused, for sure, by many among both faculty and students. And there were plenty of faculty who did nothing and who just redid the same nothing programs year after year. And many students who, without the internal motivation, the drive to learn, uh, basically fell through the cracks and ended up with degrees that didn't mean that much, that didn't indicate that much learning had happened. But for, for those of us who showed up and realized what an incredible opportunity the model was, not only to have total freedom to teach whatever we wanted in whatever way that we wanted, in combination with um, the full-time programs, meaning that students didn't take three or four four-credit classes at a time. They took a single 16-credit program for 10 weeks or 20 weeks or 30 weeks, an entire academic year. And so, you know, Brett and I used to talk about basically running a cryptic uh, graduate program in evolutionary biology because, you know, we did these programs that um, you know could last up to a year. Sometimes we taught together, often we taught separately or with other people. And the combination of the time, just like you had so much time with students. So 16 credits uh, for a quarter in, in, in actual reality meant three full days of class a week with one or two, four or five day field trips every quarter. Or, you know, if it was a study abroad program, five, six, nine, 11 weeks in Panama or Ecuador, in which you were with the students just all the time, right? This wasn't some, so much, so much of just classroom experience is rote and authority-based and about memorization. And even so much study abroad is about getting students into dorms in some other country and then just letting them have the equivalent of the higher ed experience in, you know, in Germany or in Ecuador or whatever it is. And frankly, that's not, that's not nearly far enough outside of the standard academic box to reach the students who are really excited to be reached. So yeah, Evergreen was an amazing model. It really was. Mm. I think that, um, so I've heard you say often that uh, you feel that people, people don't encourage children and young people to, take enough risks, seek enough adventure. And uh, yeah, I was very, I mean, I, I can see that Madagascar is, a, is an extreme example. I was, I, I was uh, actually um, quite impressed by how much, how sort of blasé you were and courageous in the face of a lot of danger. For example, when you were walking on your own past those groups of naked sailors who seemed a little bit, potentially hostile, potentially predatory. Um, it was hard to tell, at least reading the descriptions. Yeah. I wonder, what do you think has changed in our attitudes towards the way in which we raise young people? And how might we go back to, um, uh, um, how might we encourage them to be more adventurous and to travel more and to broaden their minds? There's so many answers here. I'm um, sure. Sorry. Let me, let, yeah. 
let me um, let me first say with regard to you know, the question of the naked sailors, which I think was even the chapter title, right? Um, that you know, I, I don't think that they were actually a danger, um, but it was enough of a question and enough of a sort of an absurd situation to find myself on an you know I was I was on an island off the coast of Madagascar, separated by boy, it's been a while, five, seven kilometers, something like that. In fact, recently enough part of Madagascar that from Dutch pirates maps from 17th century, it shows as an isthmus connected by a spit to Madagascar. So I was on this little tiny island where these spice boats, these boats laden with cloves and and, uh, cinnamon and nutmeg would come through. And occasionally I'd be walking to my research site on an island that I thought was uninhabited except for maybe my research assistant and um, one of one or two conservation agents and um, and I'd, I'd come across a group of, of naked Malagasy men naked sailors who you know if that had happened in the US I think it would have had the potential to be quite dangerous but the the cultural differences were such that um, uh, they looked at me, yes, as female, but also as totally alien on the basis of the color of my skin, basically. Um, so there was there was enough of a distinction between our cultural experiences that uh, that it, you know it wasn't as dangerous as it would seem under a number of other uh, cultural moments, I guess. Um, but you got you asked me what can we do to encourage children to take to take more risks how can we get back back to that moment uh, and you know I think there are a number of people who are thinking and writing a lot on this Lenore Skenazy comes to mind with with let grow um, and there are just many many parameters that are feeding into the problem one of them obviously is what has been talked about as helicopter parenting and now snowplow parenting in which it is imagined that the role of parents is to get rid of all problem, drama, trauma, risk from a child's life when, you know, clearly all it takes is, you know, a pretty cursory look at what childhood is and what and what development we don't tend to call it childhood in other species but what development looks like in other species you know the longer the development the more the the child the young in another species is learning how to be what the adult will be and so humans have the longest childhood per lifetime uh, of any species out there. We are exactly learning how to be human as we go from totally helpless newborns to uh, hopefully, you know, adults, depending on when you count, depending on the cultures at 13, 18, 25, 40, you know, who knows? Um, but, uh, you know, we, instead of allowing the children to take risks and with that, taking the risk that something horrifying might happen and that as a parent, you would have to live with the knowledge that you could have kept the child perfectly physically safe in every regard. And they almost certainly would have gotten to 18. The trade-off with that is, well, you can, you can basically guarantee by effectively putting your kid in a box and protecting him or her from every single slight that might come their way, uh, that they will survive, but they won't be capable 
they won't be resilient, they won't be anti-fragile, and they won't often be able to tell the difference between, for instance, physical or emotional or psychological or intellectual uh, insults that come their way. And so, you know, allowing kids to go out and actually experience physics, you know, which is to say mechanics and gravity and acceleration on their own, <laughs> uh, like this, this, does, this goes a long, long way. And, you know, I will say that um, just anecdotally for, for my own children, for Brett's and my own children, the last time we were in Ecuador with students, we had 30 undergraduates with us and our two boys who were then, I guess, almost, they were 9 and 11 at that point. And they'd been raised their entire life in Olympia, Washington, which is a small town. And we lived right across the street from a vast forest. And we had, you know, forest on our land as well. And, you know, these were children who in the Amazon, as long as they were attired correctly, we could trust to wander off. We didn't let them go on solo hikes in the Amazon, but we could let them wander off ahead of us. And, you know, one case, you know, one of them came back to us and says, there's a coral snake up ahead. And it was a gigantic coral snake. And, you know, he knew what to do. And he came back to us and we went and looked at it. And by comparison, when we went to a city with them after getting back, they weren't really sure what to do with streetlights. You know, we, ha we hadn't trained them uh, in city life, but, we, you know, they knew what to do in the Amazon, but they didn't know what to do in New York. So, you know, there, there are trade-offs. And at this point, they're, they're getting better with, with city life. Uh, but... The, the trade-off, I think, for children entirely raised in, in cities is that they come to imagine that the people, you know, the, the lawyers and the laws who have made life so safe in cities is what reality is, and that most slights could be negotiated away with a social contract. And the fact is that physical reality doesn't care what you think. It doesn't respond to your impressions of it. And if you fall and, you know, you, you blame the stepladder or the cliff or whatever it is that you fell off of, that doesn't change the fact that you fell and you've now got whatever injuries you sustained from falling. And so the fact that you just can't negotiate that away is so deeply instructive and I think necessary to informing children as they grow up into adults the distinction between what you can and cannot um, change as a result of your own particular approach to it. Mm. Yeah. And you, you also can't apportion blame. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, I don't, as, as with so much of the, the current society level problems, I, yes, everyone needs to be able to take responsibility and learn how to take responsibility for themselves. But I don't mostly blame the young people who've been raised without childhoods, who've been raised often on drugs that uh, mute their moods um, or are hormonal and so are fundamentally altering uh, their adolescence. Uh, they've also been raised with screens that enhance the sense that all of reality is a social construct uh, because the, the powerful computers they hold in their hands are indeed mostly a social construct. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that so many people who are coming of age now are actually not able to tell the difference between things like emotional and physical insults. Uh, but it is, it is our job society-wide to to fix it 
Yeah, I find, I find this this very interesting because what when you know obviously I, I talk a lot about about postmodernism as in a um, a, a sort of intellectual shift, but there's also the the epoch of postmodernity, which is is very much about um, things becoming less real, things becoming virtual, things becoming fleeting. Uh, the difficulty in telling the difference between the authentic and the representation mm-hmm. of things. And this, I think, when the you know, I'm thinking particularly of of, of uh, people like Baudrillard, but when I, th- I think this is something that that is it's becoming apparent to to everyone which doesn't need to be tied in with the whole load of um, nonsense about subjectivity and um, discourses shaping reality that that the theory came with it but I, I don't know that we're gonna easily find a way out of this um, sort of perception of, of, of uh, layers of, of artificial reality yeah and obviously uh, you take um, take the your kids to Ecuador and and um, things like that. That's certainly a way, a way, um, a way to do that. But I, I I find it interesting that this is this is coming from this. This is what the first thing was with postmodernism. It was people observing the beginning of this, and then it just went nuts into into sort of theoretical and um, advocacy of um, of radical skepticism. But yeah, we we haven't really addressed properly that. Um, that sort of fakeness, and I, I think we need to, and I, I do think the whole sort of free-range parenting idea is is an attempt to do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think, you know, one one hypothesis I have, uh, which you know, I don't I don't want to go and um, do the research, but I would love for someone to do it. It shouldn't it shouldn't actually be that hard. Is that um, the the activists at the moment who do not seem like good faith activists to me, but the those who are advocating for social justice, even though to many of us it doesn't seem like actual justice, and for inclusion and equity, um, when equity is a is a code word and inclusion isn't actually very inclusive, the people who are at the forefront of these lines of, frankly, destroying good systems at colleges and universities and, and, and corporations and such, are... Um, I think very unlikely to be the same people who are rock climbing or skiing or engaging in physical activity that provides you feedback of any sort. And, it, you know, the sp- sport is the easy example to go to, but really, really anything. So one of the things that I advocate for, and in fact, this is a, an assignment, um, this is this is related to an assignment that I and, and Brett and I used to give to our programs, um, to our students, uh, is you know, do something, learn to do something where you're getting physical feedback from the universe and it, you, can't, you can't get it to lie to you. So maybe that's baking and maybe that's carpentry and maybe that's playing the guitar and maybe that's rock climbing. And, you know, all of those have different levels of risk associated with them. You know, if you, if you screw up baking, you're not going to fall to your death. I mean, unless you're doing some very strange baking. Um, I don't know. You're um, talking to Helen here. So I think Helen is quite capable of killing herself and other people in the kitchen (laughs) using only, only household appliances. I I take exception to that. Exception is noted. And we'll be taken on advisement. (laughs) 
Oh man. Um, so the, um, yeah. the, the assignment that uh, I gave sometimes and that Brett, gave, Brett and I gave sometimes we called learn a skill. And so, you know, remember in these, in these evergreen programs, we had 10 weeks or a quarter was 10 weeks long. And so we had one, two or three quarters with the same group of students. And so the time I remember this working best, we had a two quarter program, Brett and I were teaching together. And at the beginning of the first quarter, one of the ongoing assignments for the class, and this was a program called Evolution and the Human Condition. So we were exploring all sorts of things about um, you know, what, how we can use evolution to basically hack ourselves into being better human beings and what it means to be human and what some evolutions of humanity have looked like with the particular focus on the New World diaspora. Um, so all, all of that was sort of the content stuff. But we also did some things that didn't seem to be about that. One of the things we did was physical computing. We had the students working on you know, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and learning how to actually um, actually do some things with with technology that resulted uh, in in actual products that they could they could see their influence on the world. But the the learn a skill project was take something from this list that we've generated or something of your own choosing, and they included things like guitar playing and uh, rock climbing and baking and such. And spend I don't remember what it was X number of hours a week, four hours a week, six hours a week, something doing it. And there are going to be two check-ins, and one of them's halfway through the quarter, and you're going to have to stand up in front of the class for three minutes and talk about where you are and where you wish you were and what went wrong. And again, for longer, 10 or 12 minutes or something at the end of the quarter to the whole class, and you're going to you know, own your own success or failure or your failure to fail, which is the real failure, right, that, that you just didn't actually do the work, and that's why you don't know how to do the thing. And, you know, the, the sort of the stated... That the two, I think we were explicit about both of these, but the goals of the project were, yes, you're going to learn something um, physical to do where the feedback that the universe will give you cannot be gamed, but also you're going to be learning something about your own motivational structure. You know, if you, if you find that the deadline approaching is the thing that gets you to, to actually practice or learn whatever it is you're trying to do, then you're externally motivated. And the fact is the world isn't going to hand you a lot of external motivators that are actually going to allow you to become a better human being. Like you, you, almost everyone hopefully could find a boss that will hand them deadlines over and over and over again. But at the end of a lifetime of that, most people don't feel all that satisfied. And we were trying to teach our students to become, to find their own internal motivation, to be driven to do those things that they had both passion for and ability at and it was, you know, it was, it was a fun, interesting, you know, wildly variable project, uh, but it was, it was one that I thought was compelling. I've, I've recently been reading Daniel Pink's book. Uh, it's called Drive, and it's um, a collection of studies of motivation. And Pink's central argument is that, in fact, um, we have all, we have always tended to believe that people are motivated by carrots and sticks, that to get people to do better work, you offer them rewards if they do the work and you punish them if they don't do it. But that in fact, you get much better results if you create a, um, an environment in which, they, um, in which they feel internal motivation to work. You need to tap into their internal motivation. In fact, offering 
the, the carrot and stick model of offering rewards and punishments can be counterproductive. He argues that from a lot of data in the book, and it makes sense to me. I mean, one thing that I also noticed, you said that you feel that some of the people who are the most strident, perhaps, or extreme or um, narrow-minded activists often are not taking part in any kind of physical activity. So there's no check on them from the universe. There's no kind of practice of stoicism, identifying what you can control, what you can't control. And That's right. That's my hypothesis. Yeah. Makes perfect sense to me. But I also noticed that just there's geographically, they tend to be very, very narrow-minded, that whenever I uh, encounter social justice activists, I encounter people who assume that everyone in the world is American and lives in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Just, you know, on a, on a constant basis. And, and also, uh, you know, I, I read on Twitter, which is probably not a great representation of humanity, to be fair, but I read posts like um, tweets like Islamophobia or anti-Muslim feeling is at its most extreme in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. And this is in the face of the Chinese literally putting Muslims into concentration camps and a huge wave of anti-Muslim feeling in India, which I actually talk about in a previous podcast with Rohini Mohan and Rohit Chopra, and actual lynchings of Muslims and gang violence against Muslims within India. It's extraordinary that in the face of that, you would think that the US and the UK were the most anti-Muslim places. It's There's just a kind of extreme narrow-mindedness. I I was interested in in what you were saying about this kind of um, narrowness. And I, I, I think that what it is, is... It's because it's being this kind of conception of the world in which you're sort of positioned within a certain conceptual frameworks. And these are systems of power and privilege and marginalization. And there's language which is um, is is keeping is, is sort of perpetuating everything. And the people who so often accuse others of um um, being part of this and not working to dismantle it are the ones who are very much embedded within it themselves and find it very difficult to see outside the systems, either to to other cultures or um, or to individuality or to shared humanity. And so you you tend to end up with with people who or who who just see clusters of ideas and and systems of power and and privilege and they can't sort of speak outside it and this is why you get this strange situation where somebody will respond to something that you said with what seems like a complete non sequitur because they have decided that they've they've got all these values themselves in a cluster so they think that that if somebody states one view they must be within the context of all these other views which, right. which are kind of uh, the, the strangest thing that ever happened to me was when I said I wasn't convinced that um, men doing more dirty and dangerous jobs um, ex- fully explained the earnings gap. Mm-hmm. And I was then accused of um, Islamophilia. And <laughs> 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 uh, it, it is 
laughable and also completely absurd. Um, so I don't. I I was going to speak to um, the the Reuters poll, which came out last year, but has recently come back uh, into social media space. That found that the U.S. was one of the top ten most dangerous countries for women. Like, oh, that one! Oh, oh. Like, like, like the ones that that you, you were talking about. But you know, I I looked into it a little bit. I, I wrote something, and it's just. It, I looked into it a little bit and, you know, the poll itself is taking no data at all. It is not a scientific poll, as it would seem to be to a casual observer. It is a poll of opinion. And the people they asked who remain anonymous to us are experts in things like gender studies. Okay, so they're asking a bunch of people who are proclaimed experts in exactly this sort of very narrow ideological framework, what countries are most dangerous for women. And at the same moment that I was becoming aware of this absurd poll a number of weeks ago in February of 2019, uh, the New York Times was reporting yet again on what has been going on in South Sudan for six years. And you know the most recent reports have girls and women being tied to trees and gang raped and South Sudan is not on the list. Like, you know, the U.S. is on this list of the top 10 most dangerous countries for women, which includes all these other countries where women are actually being quite horrifically treated. And then, of course, there are tens of other countries in the world, like South Sudan, that don't even make it because the ideologues were the people answering this this poll. And then that got trotted out to news organizations and repeated as if it was some kind of truth. And what it, what it, the truth that it reports actually is that some number of people who are claiming expertise in, in women's health and rights throughout the world are deeply, deeply confused and naive. Mm. Well, I've written a bit about the, the Western centric nature of this. It's, it really is quite narcissistic because it, it wants to, look at um, white Western guilt, and that requires um, everybody else to play a foil to this. It still continues to centre you know, American or British or whatever um, experience and to focus so much on its relation with the rest of the world that anything outside of this doesn't doesn't get a look in. And it really can look as though people don't actually care about um, women in, say, Saudi Arabia or or anywhere else, but it's it's much more of a sort of self-flagellating but still narcissistic navel-gazing thing going on there. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Heather, you said something earlier on which really intrigued me, um, which you said that you your interest switched at some point over towards looking at evolutionary history for what it can teach us about modern humans. At the risk of uh, making a huge open-ended question again, <laughs> can you say something about that? Yeah. Um, well, I guess one, one way in is to, to recognize that an evolutionary perspective going back in time we have, we have names for all of these groups that we belong to and are, and they get ever bigger and more remote from us as we go back in time. So we are Homo sapiens sapiens, 
and we are also within the broader homo lineage and we are apes and we are monkeys and we are primates and mammals and reptiles and fish and animals and you, you know, whenever I talk about this, uh, you, we don't have the hand, we don't have the visual here with this podcast, but you can imagine my hands going farther and farther mm. out with each mm. group. It's just this ever more expansive, ever bigger, more actually inclusive to use this, this, this term that's been kind of weaponized now, but each of those groups is more inclusive than the last. So, you know, at the species level, we are homo sapiens sapiens and it's the, it's the narrowest group in one regard. And of course, you know, we have taken over the planet, so we are more numerous and have more impact on the planet than um, we certainly have more impact on the planet than any other species we've uh, we, we've yet understood. But each of those truths about our evolutionary history holds some key to who we are and what we are. So for instance, from the perspective of, of sex and gender, you know we've been sexually reproducing organisms for 500 million years. And in our lineage that hasn't changed. And in that lineage, those individuals who have large sessile, which is to say largely immovable gametes that have all of the richness of the cell, the cytoplasm in it, those are females. And those individuals who have little tiny zippy stripped of cytoplasm gametes are, which in animals we call sperm, are males. And that's, that's it. And so all of these other things that are true about, you know, in mammals, we have what's called chromosomal sex determination, which is to say we've got an XX and XY system. Well, it's true. And in humans, the vast majority of X people with an XX at that 23rd position are female and XY are male. But that's just what determines sex. It's not what makes you male or female. Uh, it's, it, it, it's actually deeper than that. And so being able to go back deeper into time and say, okay, but you know, that thing actually hasn't changed. And, you know, more recently, another way that an evolutionary approach to what humans are is, is relevant. And I mean, my bias is it's pretty much always relevant, but um, within humans, we are also, and here I'm going into less and less some, now my hands are coming in. So the biggest thing is we're sort of, we're, we're, we're homo sapiens sapiens, we're anatomically modern humans, and then one step smaller is pretty much all of us were hunter-gatherers at some point in our history. And one step smaller is agriculturalists. And one step smaller yet is post-industrialists, which you know everyone, everyone in this podcast is all of those things, has been all of those things. And the fact that we're no longer making our livings as agriculturalists or hunter-gatherers doesn't mean that that history didn't happen and doesn't mean that those truths still aren't part of us. And so one, one way that that manifests, for instance, is that um, starch, uh, which is long-chain carbohydrates, uh, is the molecule is called amylose, and it's digested by the enzyme amylase, which is a standard uh, naming convention in biology. The, the enzyme that digests the thing is the thing with an ace ending. So amylase digests amylose, and um, amylase digests amylose, and chimps have one copy of the gene that codes for amylase. And modern humans um, have varying numbers, and it depends somewhat on what our um, what our lineages are, what we came from. But all of us have, it seems, among those populations that have been looked at, between three and five copies 
of this gene that codes for amylase, which is the which is the enzyme that digests the complex carbohydrate known as starch. So what does that say about what we are and what diet we ought to be eating? Well, there, you know, hunter-gatherers eat a lot of starches in the form of sort of tubers and such they dig up. But the point at which starch becomes, you know, an even higher proportion of our diet is at the point that we start farming 10, 12,000 years ago. So the fact that pretty much, I mean, I think it's every single population that's been looked at of modern humans has more copies of... Uh, the gene that codes for the ability to digest starch, then our closest living relatives suggests that um, we're actually adapted to an agriculturalist lifestyle. And that doesn't mean that we're adapted to eat toxin-laden wheat uh, that's been changed by modern corporations that are only interested in a profit motive. But the idea that we shouldn't be eating any starches is actually, you know, this this finding about um, our copies of the gene that codes for amylase puts the light on. Oh, uh-oh. So th- those are a couple of ways. <laughs> that, yeah, go on. Sorry, I'm on keto. So um, I'm not using my amylase. <laughs> No, and, and you don't need to, right? I mean, they, I think, um, you know, keto and all of its relatives, uh, you know, actu- actually make make good sense uh, up to a point. And the, th- the thing that I would object to is specifically the language around paleo, which is just a version of, of a keto diet, mm-hmm. right? That the language around paleo diets is this is how we ought to be eating, because this is this is how we used to eat, and the evol- the the actual nuanced, non naive evolutionary point is that is the way that our ancestors did eat at one point. But we have had thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, depending on when you're talking about, of evolution since then, during which time all aspects of ourselves have mm. adapted. So we are not adapted to a single moment in time. We are adapted to every single moment in time that we have existed during. And what we can't do is um, adapt to a future that hasn't yet mm. happened, unless it's exactly mm. like the past. That's a good thing to remember then. If, yeah, so if somebody is making a simplistic claim about what we should eat based on a, a moment in time, we'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll take that with a huge pinch of salt. Yeah. <laughs> and salt's probably fine for us too. <laughs> Yes, I, I mean, since I brought it up, I'll say really briefly that I believe in the N, N equals one theory of dieting. So you should find what works for you and do it. <laughs> well, and this, I mean, this is actually consistent too. I mean, this, this is completely consistent with, um, with what both Brett and I talk about, which is that there will not be a single universally best diet for all humans. That's impossible. There may well, there are certainly things that are universally bad for all of us. And most of those things are, have to do with novelty. You know, things like aspartame and glyphosate and other very new molecules that have been created in labs and how we have almost no history with. Some of them we'll be fine with and some of them we won't. But, you know, given that both Inuit and Maasai exist as human ways of being and the Inuit hardly ever ran into plant foods and uh, the and the Maasai were mostly eating uh, dairy and milk, if memory serves, I mean, dairy and uh, blood, how are you going to mesh that with, oh, the Mediterra- Mediterranean diet is the only good diet out there for humans? Mm. It can't be. It's just, there's just no way. So we are, we are all going to have a best diet for us, and it is going to be related to our particular lineage. Mm. 
Mm. Well, it's, it's very interesting because you could perhaps even, um, oh, well, uh, I'm sure that's probably not a good idea, but I was thinking you, you could actually um, get quite a lot of information then by um, having your, your ancestry um, uh, checked. But then I, I think this would probably psychologically just lead to more uh, naive um, faddishness, wouldn't it? <laughs> It, it, it might, certainly. We all, I mean, and this is human too, right? We, we look for the excuses. We, we, we look, we're all guilty of confirmation bias, even when we're trying not to be. And uh, we, will, we will only remember the results we want if we allow ourselves to. I think I'm definitely going to have to get to um, read this book then. Is it, is it on audiobook at all yet, Heather? Probably, probably not. You know, it came out... It came out in 2002, so it's a long time mm. ago, and you know, and I, it's it's long been out of print. I actually I don't know, but I, my guess would be oh, it's, not, it's in print. Um, Heather, is yeah, it is in it print. in print again? Well, that's that's news to me. So okay, I'm just yeah, it's certainly in print, but no, there's no audiobook. But yes, there's a Kindle version. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to get that one and, and treat myself to it when I need to be relaxing and not thinking about critical theory. At the moment, I'm looking at Judith Butler and it is killing me. So I should perhaps... <laughs> I can assure you that there's no critical theory in it. None at all. <laughs> treat myself with it before I go to sleep. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it is it is remarkably and completely free of critical <laughs> theory and everything. Wonderful. And I would expect no less. Um, Heather, maybe we could end by talking about what kind of perspective do you think that people gain from studying evolutionary biology that, that many people are currently lacking? It gives us a sense both of our history and of our possibilities, I would say. Um, we, many people do not understand w what we've emerged from, what we've evolved from. Uh, and at the same moment, there's a, there's a way that people who do get that, who do get that we are animals and, and even reptiles and, and monkeys and all of these things, um, imagine that you know, maybe we've stopped evolving or that evolutionary change is inherently slow and only about the physical body. And it's, it's not. So really understanding the social system that we're in and our, our relationships and our communications as the result of evolutionary process, just as much as the fact that we have four chambered hearts or a kidney that can extract nitrogenous waste and, and, help us get rid of it into the environment. Um, all, all of these things are evolutionary. And it's not uh, a hopeless situation. It's actually, I think, a very hopeful message that if we understand what we are and what we've evolved from and can look to other organisms uh, that have complex social systems, say, and complex emotions like grief as in elephants or, you know, keeping track of intense relationships over lineages like baboons and dolphins, that uh, we, we can look to the comparisons with these other long-lived organisms that have long childhoods and generational overlap where two, three, sometimes four generations live together in community. And in those communities too, things go off the rails. You know, Jane Goodall was devastated at Gombe to discover what she could only describe as war in her chimps. 
Uh, and that's, it's, it's just true. And that doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it nice. But recognizing that it happens and trying to understand the reasons for these things happening is, to me, it always has been a very hopeful uh, investigation rather mm. than a hopeless one. That's wonderful. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end. So, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. And I will make sure the details of your uh, book and anything else we've referred to here are in the show notes. And we'll also have some timestamps so people can um, dip in and listen to specific parts of the conversation. Well, that's so helpful. Thank you. And you're welcome. <laughs> and it's been an absolute delight. And I feel like I feel as though you are a friend, even though we've never met. Indeed, me too. So clearly I need to rectify that. And get over to Portland yes. to meet your dog. Yes. ASAP. That's, yes. that's always my number one yes. priority when people have dogs. And and also to meet He, he is a very nice dog. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to meet firstly your dog and then secondly you and Brett. <laughs> excellent. I'm glad yes, you have she, She's priority. quite open about this. <laughs> that's excellent. And and the cat will not be put out if he's not on the list. I'm not a cat person. Usually I ignore them and they ignore me. <laughs> so <laughs> you have an Thank you so much and thank you for co-hosting with me, Helen. Thank you both. Yeah, and now I'm I'm all inspired by evolutionary biology again. Uh, thank you, Heather, for that, that conversation and I hope we have another one soon. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.